This episode is brought to you by Pepsi Wild Cherry. Pepsi Wild Cherry is bursting with delicious cherry flavor and a sweet, crisp taste that gives you more to go wild for. Getting wild may look different these days, but whether it's opting for a solo Friday binge watch or a big night out, everyone can indulge in their wild side with Pepsi Wild Cherry, also available in Zero Sugar. So grab a Pepsi Wild Cherry and get wild. 630 Chad Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins. Weekdays at 6 on 630 Chad. <laughs> Edmonton's home for breaking news on your favorite teams. This is Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins on the voice of your Edmonton Oilers and Eskimos. 630 Chad. The New Jersey Devils have just scored. Calgary, though, still has the lead 3-2 with about 12 minutes left. Nine minutes to go in Buffalo. Sabres are up 3-2 on the Islanders. Early third period in Philadelphia. Flyers leading the Canadians 4-2. Second period, Senators up 3-2 on Nashville. Also late in the second frame, Tampa Bay 3, Vancouver nothing. After the first, St. Louis goal from Braden Shen, his 22nd. Blues 1, Avalanche nothing. Also after the first period, Wild up 1-zip on the Coyotes. Eric Stahl has his 24th. And Chicago leads Dallas 1-0 late first period. Jonathan Taves with his 15th. Golden Knights and Sharks coming up. Later tonight, the Raptors leading the Knicks 71-57 with three minutes left in the third quarter. There is Charlie Huddy tipping the puck to Gretzky in the corner up on the right wing boards to Curry at the side of the net. He works it back up on the right side, tipped it in. Coffey trying to get set to Curry right in front. Here's Gretzky right in alone. Shoot, scores! Game three of the 1985 Stanley Cup Final. Rod Phillips calling that goal the 84-85 team voted by fans as the greatest of all time. Randy Gregg was on that team. Randy, I'm sorry, we don't have a lot of tape. I couldn't find Rod calling one of your goals. (laughs) Well, it would be a a long time. I like to tell people I scored 50 goals in the NHL. The problem is it took nine years to get them all, so (laughs) not that easy to find them. (laughs) Well, that wasn't your role on the team, but you know I had Pat Hughes on uh, in, in the last uh, in the last half hour, and I'll, I'll start with the same thing. Uh, uh, I, I, I asked him just when you hear Rod's voice and hear him calling some of those highlights, how do you feel? Well, it's pretty exciting. Of course, we were uh, lucky enough not only to be able to play, but to watch the greats like Gretzky and Coffee and, and Curry. So we had some pretty good seats, and we're actually being paid to to be there. We put in our time. I I, I tend to think that. We were just on the ice so that Gretzky and Coffey could rest a little bit. They were uh, amazing players, great men, great leaders in the team. And so it was lots of fun to be around them, for sure. Look, there there are a lot of great teams. Uh, you know, there are a lot of great teams that, that don't even win the Stanley Cup sometimes. This is a fan vote. I mean, but but the league, you know, the, the sports are for the fans. Without the fans, there are no games. When you heard that you guys had won the greatest team vote, did that? did you kind of have to take a second? Was that a bit of a wow moment? Well, it was, you know, because when <clears throat> when many of us grew up, you know, the Montreal Canadiens had such a dynasty and they had such a depth. Their coaching staff was so strong, and then the New York Islanders before us. Uh, so when we were young players, uh, we looked up to a lot of great teams. To think that the Oilers that we played with uh, were even mentioned in the same vein as as some of those teams is really quite uh, an honor for sure. You won it, and you lost the final in '83. You won the final in '84, and then you win it again in '85. 
did the path feel any different? Did the process feel any different, given that you'd won the previous spring? Yeah, I think it did, actually. I think that's maybe why people think this team was such a strong team. You know, in 83, I think all of us had no idea what we were doing, and you know, getting into the Stanley Cup, everyone was so excited about it. We didn't realize the hard work that it took to become a champion. We, we thought we did, but uh, the Islanders certainly showed us uh, what it was to be uh, a great champion. Uh, 1984 championship, when we finally won, uh, I think we all realized at that point in time that, boy, we could do this uh, another 15 or 20 times. And so in the 1984-85 season, I think there was lots of confidence. I think all the players realized that, uh, that individual accolades were good, but if we really wanted to win the Stanley Cup, we had to stay together as a team and work hard. And, of course, with the leadership of you know, people like Gretzky and Messier, um, you know, that was the goal. It was a really nice way to see this transition from a, a group of you know, great players uh, to now a, a great team. So yeah, it was fun. Well, and, and you sort of you, you, you touched on a little bit, but uh, look, the Oilers, th- this year's Oilers probably aren't going to make the playoffs, very unlikely. But watching that game against Tampa Bay on Monday, to me, McDavid almost had one of those performances where he said to heck with it, we are not losing this game. I won't let it happen. And, and there were probably a lot of moments where one of the guys on the Oilers in that era stepped up with that, look, guys, we're not losing, follow me type thing, right? Well, there are generational players. Unfortunately, we had two of them during our time, and that was Wayne Gretzky and, and Mark Messier. But interestingly enough, you think about it, we had a, uh, an alumni game against the Winnipeg Jets in Winnipeg about a year ago, and it was an outdoor game. It was lots of fun. Anyway, the Winnipeg Jets got up 4 to nothing, and as we were sitting in the, uh, on the bench, uh, Mark Messier came around and said, Guys, smarten up. We're not going to lose this game. And I thought, my gosh, this is an alumni game. So... Uh, you know, when you have that kind of leadership, even in an alumni game, you realize that, that winning is important. And uh, back then, of course, it wasn't. Uh, it was just expected from all the players that if we played as good as we could, uh, barring unforeseen bad luck, uh, we'll win our share of games. Yeah, well, you certainly did that. Randy Gregg joining us on Inside Sports at 7-11. You know, Randy, it's it's great to have you on the show. We've talked a couple times before, and we got so, we got a couple topics we want to dive in with you uh, tonight. Obviously, the 84-85 ceremony uh, celebration coming up on Sunday night. Uh, the Olympics, well, they've actually started. There's already been some curling events, but the, the opening ceremony is coming up, uh, I guess, overnight, and uh, we're going to roll into all the other events and the hockey tournaments uh, for the men and the women are going to get a lot of attention. Uh, you played, what, in 80 and 88? you were in the Olympics? Yeah, that's right. Actually, after uh, medical school, I was lucky enough to, uh, to play in the 80 Olympics and uh, um, I think made a pretty good decision. I had a chance to sign a contract for, for lots of money in the NHL, but decided to, to get $4,000 for a six-month commitment uh, down in Calgary to represent Canada. So a really uh, fine experience and I look back on it very fondly. 88, the games were in Canada. Now, now the NHLers weren't in it. I mean, you had played in the NHL, but obviously it wasn't, you know, the guys taken straight out of the NHL and a whole team of NHLers like it had been before this year. But what do you remember about the hype and the expectation going into those games on Canadian soil? Well, certainly Calgary was uh, was excited. The fans, uh, of course, were supporting the Canadian uh, players and, <clears throat> and all the athletes. Um, it was a little bit different because uh, although many of us had committed to spend uh, six months uh, being part of a team and knowing that if you're going to beat the Czechs and the Russians and the Swedes, you needed to become a very strong team, uh, it was decided a, a week or so before the Olympics that actually three, um, uh, three NHL players would join our team. And, and so the dynamics made it a little bit interesting. The timing wasn't perfect. 
but looking back on it, you know, it's so nice to play in front of your fans, whether it's uh, at Northlands Coliseum in front of uh, the Edmonton Oilers fans or uh, in Calgary playing against, uh, you know, the Europeans and Russians uh, in front of your fans. Are, are you, I mean, the, the NHLers are, aren't going to be in it. Does that change the way you're going to follow the games, the passion for it? I mean, I, I get all kinds of uh, feedback from listeners, everything from, you know, I won't watch because I want best on best. Uh, and the other end of the spectrum is I, I just like uh, hockey. I like Canadian hockey. I like great stories. And this tournament is is going to have a, a lot of that. I mean, Chris Kelly is going to be the captain of uh, Team Canada, and he was trying out for the Oilers earlier this season. H- how do you look at how this tournament and how it might be, um, you know, perceived without the NHLers involved? Yeah, it's a really good question, actually. I think nobody's wrong, to be honest with you. I think as a fan of uh, of hockey, people have every right to want to see more of Connor McDavid. I mean, who wouldn't want to see the, such a fantastic player? And years ago, it was Wayne Gretzky and all those players. So, you know, it's natural for a fan to be able to want to see the individual exploits of such great players. On the other hand, there are other people that suggest that, you know, Connor McDavid gets a chance to play a lot of hockey. and uh, And if he is not part of the Olympic program then some other lesser-known players get to represent their country, but not just for those 12 days when the NHL is nice enough to stop playing and allow the players to go, but to represent Canada for the six or eight months beforehand, to actually create a team environment that maybe represents Canada in this Bangalore Cup or these Vestia Cup. Also, we don't really care about that too much in Canada because we're, many of us are focused on the NHL. Um, that's a really a positive experience for these young men. And so to spread it around so that uh, everyone or many more uh, good players uh, get a chance to play at, a, at an elite level. I personally think that's good, and I'll be excited about watching the Canadians. Whether I know any of the players or not, it's still the team that represents my country, so I'll be cheering for them a lot. Yeah, well said. Randy Gregg joining us on Inside Sports. Okay, the other angle we have to talk about, and this is really interesting, you, you got to play in the Olympics, but you also were an Olympic parent, or the parent of Olympians, I guess would be a better way to put that. Uh, you had uh, Jessica and Jamie both compete in speed skating in in 2010. Uh, I mean, that must be... I mean, we're talking about you playing in the Olympics and being on the winning Stanley Cups, but was there, in terms of a source of pride in your life, was, was there anything greater than seeing uh, Jessica and Jamie compete in the Olympics in Vancouver? You know, we used to think that, that fans would often think that the Edmonton Oilers' uh, day started off at 7.30 when they turned on the TV. <laughs> and, and, in fact, there's a fair bit of work to be done to become an NHL player. And, uh, and similarly, uh, at the Olympic level, my children were fortunate enough to go to a couple of Olympics each. But you know what I'm so proud of is not the fact they went to the Olympics. Of course, I went there. I was nervous as anything uh, sitting in the stands. But what I was most proud about was, was the, the effort, the time and commitment working three, four hours a day to be one of the best uh, short track and long track speed skaters in, in the world. And, uh, you know, I can remember Jessica phoning me once, and she would train like a madman, and she said to me, she said, Dad, this is really hard. I said, Jess, if it was easy, anybody could do it. And, you know, some of those skills and qualities and the commitment that, uh, that all the athletes that will watch uh, during the Olympics, but certainly my two children uh, did, you know, makes us all proud that their, their learning skills will make them you know, good teachers and good doctors and a good businessman and, and good people in the community. So I think that's the legacy that the Olympics gives, whether they came in first or last. And we all cheer for the, the medals, 
But really, it's much more important. That experience is, is much wider than simply winning a medal. When did you, where did it sort of click for you as a, as a parent that, that the, the kids might have the chance to, 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 to speed skate at a really high level? And as somebody who played in the NHL, did you ever feel like, geez, I better be careful I'm not pushing too hard for them to be an elite athlete like Dad was? Or, or how did you handle some of that, the expectation that came along with that? Yeah, well, you know what, probably when they were quite young, I realized that there was something special about these kids because they used to say, Dad, come on, let's get in the car. I want to go skating. And that was absolutely reflective on their lovely mother who made sure that uh, that speed skating was just a great fun. That it was a, a good challenge, that they wanted to stay in shape. They loved their, their uh, comrades that they would skate with, uh, but they just couldn't wait to get there. And I thought, you know what, if we're going to be elite athletes, we have to love and have a passion for our sport. And uh, there's no question they had their passion. So finally, when Jessica became, I think, 15 or 16 and went to the World Juniors, we thought, you know what, she's, uh, she's got her mother's physical talent and uh, her passion for the sport, so things might go. Well, that, that must have been a pretty cool experience as well. Uh, Randy, you're going to be, uh, are, are you, you're obviously in town, so you're going to be there Sunday night and tell some stories? I think they're going to let me come. <laughs> they're going to let they're going to let you come to the team that you helped make the, the the greatest of all of all time. That's pretty cool. Hey, Randy, I always love when we chat. Thanks so much for making time for me on the show tonight, and I hope to see you soon. My pleasure. Have a good night. That is Randy Gregg checking in tonight. Former Edmonton Oiler, two-time Olympian. Uh, two kids were in the Olympics in speed skating, so uh, we're able to cover off a, a lot of different topics and experiences with Randy. That was some fun stuff. Inside Sports on 630 Ched. We're going to tee up the world's longest hockey game with Brent Sake. It's getting ready to go. And uh, we'll also go to Indianapolis for a couple minutes to see how Colts fans are feeling about Josh McDaniels taking the head coaching job and then firing it right back at him. It's 718. Hi, this is Ryan Eugene Hopkins from your Edmonton Oilers. You're listening to Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins on Oilers Radio 630 Chad. Well, the Nuge is still at least a couple of weeks away from returning from those cracked ribs. Oilers at Ducks tomorrow, 6 o'clock face-off show. Here on 6.30, Chet, the game will start at 8. It is uh, bleak for the Oilers in terms of their playoff hopes, in terms of, uh, well, really, there aren't there aren't much. There, there are mathematical hopes left, so I'll, I'll always give the differential. You can't say they're out until they're mathematically elim- eliminated, but it's going to be tough. Talking with Raj earlier after he won those tickets, the Oilers started the season 1-4. and four. They uh, were pretty up and down. They fought back to 500 with that four-game winning streak right before Christmas. Now, as we know, 500 in the NHL is not that good. Generally, the average winning, the average points percentage in the NHL any given year is usually between 550 and 560. So to be an average team, you really need to be getting 55% of your points, not 50. But nonetheless, they got back to 500 at Christmas, looked like they were playing better, there was some hope there, and then they went 1-6-1 and one out of Christmas. And, uh, you know, 5-2-1 and one in the eight games since then, so that's not a bad little stretch, but it did, that doesn't even negate the 1-6-1 and one stretch. So, I mean, we'll, we'll see what happens over the final 30 games. Uh, I, I think they can still play pretty well. I think they can be a bit of a spoiler for some teams. I don't. It doesn't look like they've thrown in the towel, but, I mean, look, th- for, forgive me if I'm being pessimistic. I don't see them going 24-6 and six to make the playoffs. I don't see anybody winning 24 of their final 30 games. Lots of problems for the Oilers, and when they've fallen behind, they haven't been able to recover quickly enough. 
I went back and looked today. So the Oilers have played 52 games. In 16 of them, Sorry, I had to sneeze, so I shut my mic off. <laughs> in 16 of their 52 games, they have trailed at least 2 nothing by the one-minute mark of the second period. I used 21 minutes because the uh, Kings scored 58 seconds into the second period yesterday, and there were a couple of other games where the Oilers allowed a goal that put them down 2 nothing in the first minute of the second period. So 16 of their 52 games, they've been down at least 2 nothing, 21 minutes into the game. On seven occasions, they have trailed 2 nothing by the time the game was 10 minutes old. So that's, I mean, that's seven times out of 52. I think that's a fair bit where you're staring at a deficit where it's like 90% you're going to lose. They did come back from a 2 nothing deficit, obviously, uh, to beat Calgary in overtime to beat Arizona in regulation time, and they got a point against Colorado last week. In the 16 games, they've trailed 2-0 a minute into the second period. They are 2-13-1, with all the points coming in the last five games where, in the last five games in which they've trailed 2-zip. So one of the many things that have gone wrong, I, and, I, and they've only scored first 20 times in 52 games. Last year, I checked, it was exactly half. They scored the first goal 41 times. They gave it up 41 times. So, uh, but, I, but again, they didn't fall behind 2-0 a lot last year. So one of the many things that has plagued the Oilers this season, uh, we'll see if that's something they can overcome as we move along here at Anaheim tomorrow at San Jose on Saturday. Hey, I want to remind you that some gift certificates, uh, some, <laughs> let me start that over. Some guests on Inside Sports get gift certificates to Northern Chicken. How about this? Northern Chicken has a love bucket just in time for Valentine's Day. Four pieces of chicken, four chicken fingers, roasted potatoes, mac and cheese, chocolate chip cookies, and sparkling apple juice for 50 bucks. And Northern Chicken does accept reservations. Well, that sounds like a great date night. You split the chicken, you split the chicken fingers, you split the mac and cheese, you got chocolate chip cookies, or you could just go yourself and eat all that at Northern Chicken. That also sounds like a deal. World's longest hockey game. Ready to go. How ready are they? Brent Sake will tell you when we get back. Inside Sports on 630 Chet. Speaking of New Jersey, they have lost 3-2 to the Calgary Flames. Last minute of the third period, Flyers lead the Canadians. Oh, they just got another one, 5-3. Provorov just scored, 5-3. Flyers up on the Habs. Early third, Senators lead the Predators 3-2, lightening up 4-0 on the Canucks. In the second period, the Blues lead Colorado 4-1. Kyle Brodziak with his eighth of the season. Braden Shen has scored twice. He's up to 23 on the year. Wild up 3-1 on the Coyotes. Six minutes left in the second period. Chicago won. Dallas nothing after the first. Sabres beat the Islanders 4-3. Vegas at San Jose later. 
Raptors looking like another win, 111-80. They're taking it to the Knicks with three minutes left in the fourth quarter. Reed Wilkins, Inside Sports on 6.30. Chad, thanks a lot for tuning in. It is 7.34, world's longest hockey game, ready to rock and roll again. I'm pleased to welcome the man behind the game to the show, Brent Sake. Hey, Brent, how are you doing? How are you doing, Reed? Thanks for having me. It's kind of funny. We were just teasing one guy for his phone going off because we're doing our our said pregame meeting, and then two seconds later, the phone goes off, and then now now I'm in trouble. <laughs> oh, geez, well, I'm sorry to get you in trouble. <laughs> no, no, it's good. It's I don't good. know Thank if you. you heard. I don't know if you heard that coming back. I played uh, "Bad Medicine" from uh, the New Jersey Bon Jovi New Jersey album. Uh, since, since when we were texting yesterday, you made a reference to that record, yeah. so I thought I'd throw it in there for you. Uh, hey, I know you're getting ready to go here. Uh, tell us uh, how many how many years is this now? How many times have you had the world's longest hockey game? This is the sixth game now, um, 15 years kind of in the running. Uh, we threw in one baseball game in there a year ago, and uh, it just seems to be getting uh, kind of bigger and better. On the other side, a little bit easier just because uh, the facilities are always getting in upgraded, and uh, we're getting older, so we need more conveniences. <laughs> what time Is this starting tomorrow morning already? Tomorrow morning at 7.30 a.m. is the opening ceremonies. At 8 a.m., we're starting the clock for the Guinness record. Okay, and how long are you going for this time around? Because didn't those guys in Buffalo, Mike Peck and company, uh, get yeah. a longer one last summer? Yeah, they uh, they beat our record by a second, which was very nice to them. I chatted with the guy that did that, and uh, he uh, unfortunately has a similar story where his wife is battling cancer, and... Um, and he asked me if we we're going to planning to play again. And I said, yes, we are. So he, uh, he said, well, Brent, I'm only going to beat your record by a second. And, uh, that was pretty cool actually them to do that. So you got to go until what the following Sunday. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to holiday Monday, the 19th. Okay. We're going to be done around, I think 7 PM, 6 or 7 PM, something like that. Okay. Now, I, I know there was some stuff on, on Twitter earlier today. Did you get some last-minute notification about uh, oh. refs or officials, or what's going oh, on? Just awful. The uh, So we've had the same rules every every game that we've done this, and what ended up happening was uh, we get an email this morning from Guinness saying, we used to be able to skate for an hour, have a 10-minute break, and that's what the Zambonis did their thing and stuff. Uh, now the rule has changed as of this morning <laughs> that we have to skate for an hour and then we get a five-minute break, but that doesn't give enough time for the Zambonis to do the thing. So what we'll end up doing now is skating two hours straight, get a 10-minute break, and then go for two hours, get a 10-minute break, and we'll have to run it that way. The other thing they tossed at us was we've always been able to just get away with two refs, but now they want four refs. So I don't know what the math on that is, but 250-some hours, I need two more people for every hour to come out and ref for us. And when I say wow. ref, it's not its not ref. My, my mom's got a couple of shifts, and she'll be in her long fur coat and figure skates and, and, a, and a whistle. Uh, it, it's about having a body on the ice that, uh, uh, that we can show. We had four people in ref jerseys out there, so... Okay, so do you, are you still looking for people to get involved? Is there some way I can I can hook people up with you if you want? Definitely. Worldslongestgame.com will take you to the Alberta Cancer Foundation's website. Um, and on there, there's a way to get involved or support, whether it's support, whether it's a volunteer or donate or whatever it is, it's, it's all in there. 
Okay, well, that, that's amazing. They would change the rules uh, within 24 hours, especially if they've been... What rules did they have in Buffalo? Did they have the old rules? The old rules, yeah, they had that. So, uh, But that's that's okay. I mean, um, we always understand, like, the, the Guinness thing is always second. We're excited about it because it is a fun thing. Uh, step one is fundraising and getting that done, and uh, we'll do it however they want us to do it. Uh, it doesn't matter. These people that are here are unbelievable. I don't want to say athletes because they're definitely not that. <laughs> but they're unbelievable people that uh, a change like this I just talked about in our meeting. Uh, you know, it was like everybody said, oh, okay, whatever. That's what we'll do now then. Yeah. No problem. Okay, so just if, if people, because there's always some people who are hearing about this for the first time, you basically mm-hmm. play like overnight and all the way through, right? Like you don't, yeah. Like when do guys grab a nap or something to eat or what? Or what? Yeah, so our shifts are roughly, but it's, it's two teams of 20. So you've got 40 players, and if you lose a player, you can't replace the player. It's the same 40 people throughout the entire game. If someone gets injured, you're playing with 39 people throughout the game. Um, you can't switch lines, so it's team of 20 against a team of 20. Uh, we play about four to five hours straight, and then you get about a six-hour rest. And okay. That's roughly what it is. Sometimes you'll play eight hours and get a longer rest, but roughly 14 hours of hockey you'll play in a 24-hour period. And and look, again, if people are new to this, this is not just to play a hockey game for a long time. Uh, tell us about uh, raising money for the Alberta Cancer Foundation. What specifically are you hoping for this year? What's your goal? Yeah, we're we're doing um, we're doing a um, uh, program called the Profile Program. What it is is uh, children, unfortunately, when they go through cancer treatments it's kind of a, a shotgun approach a bit where they're not sure what to do or how to treat it. So now what we're able to do once this program gets up and running is genetically map the cancers that children have. And then they take that genetic map and compare it to uh, cancers of children in Ontario and BC, where it is across Canada. And from there, we can say, hey, this worked in Toronto, but this didn't work in Alberta. And, and that, type of, that collaboration has never actually happened before. And now uh, it's a $22 million project that the Terry Fox Foundation uh, started and the ACF got on board. And Alberta's uh, part in that $22 million is uh, $2 million. So we want to get this thing up and running. There's researchers in Calgary and researchers in Edmonton that are working very hard to get that done. And uh, it is what it is. It's the world we live in. Sometimes funds are needed to make these programs happen, and we're going we're, we're gonna to promise to give those funds. Well, Brent, it, it, I mean, we've talked before. It's so amazing what you do. Again, people can just go uh, worldslongesthockeygame.com or you can go to albertacancer.ca. There'll be a link if you want to help uh, ref or lines. You can get in touch with Brent through that. Thanks for making time for me, man. I know there's a lot going on. All the best. We'll talk soon, okay? Thank you, Reed, and thanks for your support. I appreciate it. Excellent stuff. That is Brent Sake checking in, the man behind the world's longest hockey game. So the folks in Buffalo just beat them by one second, so they did, didn't have to go uh, crazy adding on a whole bunch of time. Start tomorrow, go until the holiday Monday. Awesome stuff, and uh, yeah, if you want to help out, again, just uh, give World's Longest Hockey Game the Google or go to albertacancer.ca. Inside Sports on 6.30, Chet, coming right back.
This is JC Sheriff from your Edmonton Eskimos, and you're listening to Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins on 630 Chad. Well, I expect we'll be getting news about a new contract for JC Sheriff pretty soon. Today, the Eskimos did announce contract extensions for national running back Pascal Lochard and international linebacker Corey Jones who had a uh, pretty solid season for the Eskimos. He was also with the team for their Grey Cup championship in 2015. Football, a lot of talk around the sport this week. That incredible Super Bowl on Sunday. Josh McDaniels, the offensive coordinator for the Patriots. The Indianapolis Colts announced, hey, he's going to be our head coach. We're going to have a news conference. And then all of a sudden, the Indianapolis Colts are like, no, he's not going to be our head coach. Quite a story in Indy fueling the rivalry between those two teams. To discuss, Kevin Bowen covers the Colts for 1070 The Fan in Indianapolis. Kevin, welcome to Inside Sports. How are you doing? I'm doing great. How are you, Reed? I'm doing great. It's uh, awesome to have you on the show. Thanks for making time for me. This this must be the the craziest week you could imagine covering the Indianapolis Colts without the team having just played in the playoffs of the Super Bowl, eh? Yeah, I definitely did not expect to be working this late in the offseason for a head coaching search, but... Here we are, total shock, stunned, blindsided by it all, and uh, just so many questions to a head coaching search that now extends well over a month. I mean, your general manager uh, came out and spoke yesterday, uh, Chris Ballard. Can you give me a sense of that, that news conference, the tone? And, uh, I mean, is he pointing any fingers, or how has he handled all this? He's not pointed any fingers. Um, I thought he handled things really well. He, he was transparent. He was candid. Um, I, I thought he was stern when he needed to be. And when Josh McDaniels called him Tuesday night to inform him that you know he was having some indecision about it, there was no persuasion. There was no you know trying to reel Josh McDaniels back in. Um, it was pretty simple from Chris Ballard. It was either you're in or you're out. And once Josh McDaniels couldn't give a definite answer. Uh, that's when Chris Ballard, you know, said that, okay, we have to move on. And I, I, I think it, it, it takes a little something for a general manager to get up in front of your local media and to talk, you know, less than 24 hours after you you think that you have a head coach, you've announced the press conference, you've done all of that. And um, it's a little embarrassing. It's a little egg on the face for sure. But I think Chris Ballard is a really good representative for uh, what the Colts are trying to look for in a general manager. So covering the Colts and, and working in sports radio, Chris, I'm sure you have a lot of interaction with, with fans, whether it's electronically or on a talk show or whatever. Is, what is the sense of the Colts fan base? Are, are they a little embarrassed about it, or are they, are they angry about it? And, is that, and if so, is that anger amplified? Because, of course, it involves the, the hated New England Patriots. Uh, Definitely on the latter, they are so pissed that it's the Patriots because this is their arch nemesis. And on the field, to be frank with you, New England's owned the Colts over the last you know seven or eight years. The Colts have not beat the Patriots since 2009. Uh, the Patriots have won seven straight by an average of 19 points per game. Um, and the last time the Colts beat New England, Josh McDaniels was the head coach in Denver. It's been that long. So I think that's where the hatred is of like all the teams in the league. Did it really have to be New England, you know, sticking their dagger into us again? Uh, but at the same time, I think fan, this fan base has a wide range of emotions. They're embarrassed. They're pissed. Um, some people are happy because this shows Josh McDaniels is true character in a way. And then you're also worried because here you are over a month into this coaching cycle, and no matter what candidate you're going to get, it's going to be plan C or plan D. 
Um, so I, I think it's a wide range of emotions, and all of them make sense to me, you know, looking at it from a fan standpoint. Kevin Bowen joining us on Inside Sports covers the Indianapolis Colts for 1070 the fan in uh, in Indy. Well, this this is an interesting story and obviously these two teams are kind of linked because of the I guess the Brady the Brady Manning rivalry and all the times they played in the playoffs and obviously the you know the Patriots came out on top uh, more often than than the Colts did. So now this is a whole other way for these two franchises to be connected, isn't it? It is, and of course, as fate would have it, the Colts and Patriots are on the schedule in 2018. So I think a lot of people here in Indy say, screw Philadelphia opening up the season on Thursday night football. They would love to see the Colts and the Patriots play, and I'm sure uh, from a rating standpoint, that would be a, a it's definitely going to be a primetime matchup, I think, when we see the schedule come out in April. And, and w- we say all those things, and then let's not forget about the flight gate between these two organizations in the, you know, 2015, January of 2015, that AFC Championship game. Uh, th- there is a lot of bad blood from an on-the-field standpoint. It's probably not really a rivalry. Adam Vinatieri is the only Colts player that has actually beaten New England. Um, there's probably not even too many Colts players left on the roster that has even played New England. So, uh, but the fan bases, you know, still uh, despise each other, and that'll definitely be a primetime game when the NFL schedule rolls out here uh, late this spring. Yeah, a little, nice little uh, subplot to that game for sure. So, was it on on Sunday? Was was it all like we, the Colts fans? We got to cheer for the Eagles just to cheer against the Patriots, or was it just indifference towards the game? Oh, I think it was 100%. Even though Josh McDaniels was thought to be the head coach here at the time, yes, a, a, a New England loss, some might argue, is greater than a Colts win. Oh, wow. In the city of Indianapolis. <laughs> okay. Uh, that, that is, I think, how much there is hatred there. And uh, I think everybody was extremely, extremely happy that it was really a win for the Colts when you think about it and that your future head coach puts up all these points without, you know, Brandon Cooks leaving that game early. And then at the same time, New England loses. Um, and all that seemed to be gravy until about 7 or 8 o'clock on Tuesday night. i, I got to ask you one more, Kevin, here before I, I let you go. One of the, the uh, great, well, I think still relatively young players in the NFL is Andrew Luck, who we didn't get to see. What is what is his status? Is he going to be ready for uh, September and play in 2018? Or what's going on with him? That's the $140 million question here in Indy. That's the contract he signed a couple summers ago. And right now, the update on Andrew Luck is he's still not throwing a football. So here we are, you know, about a week into February, and Andrew Luck still is not throwing a football. He went over to the Netherlands back in kind of November, December, did a lot of rehab work over there. Um, he's supposed to be throwing soon in Los Angeles with some some throwing gurus who a lot of top-level quarterbacks in the NFL have worked with prior. But, um the Colts are very confident. Andrew Luck's camp is very confident. I'm a little more skeptical. I, 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 I need to see him throw. I need to see him throw on repetitive days. I've, I've always made the analogy that, you know, it's like a quarterback coming – or it's like a pitcher coming off the disabled list. You know, first it's kind of long toss. Then it's a bullpen session. Then it's you go down to the minor leagues and, you know, maybe throw sort of a simulated game. And then you eventually get back to being at, at that major league level and going out there every five days. Well, for Luck, he's got to get there to where he's throwing, you know, 10 balls of practice and then 20 balls of practice and doing that day in and day out so that wear and the tear on, on, on the shoulder builds up and you see just how ready to go he is. 
come fall. So right now the Colts are confident in everything, but I got to see them throw later this spring before I write in Sharpie Marker. He's definitely going to be good to go come September. You know, Kevin, that's ironic. He went to the Netherlands for rehab. Don't most people need rehab when they get back from the Netherlands? <laughs> that's what I was saying. Yeah, usually it's like one of those things where you go there and you have your cleansing when you get back. But it honestly sounded like luck went over there and he was very adamant that a reason why he went over of course he has history in europe he, he lived there for nine years in his childhood but he felt like he was a distraction to this football team and i don't know how much of a distraction you can you can be to one of the worst teams in the nfl but luck felt like he was so he went away and he spent thanksgiving and christmas over there um it, it's a bit of an odd place to go i guess but uh luck acts like everything that went down over there was good um he didn't need any surgical procedures it was a lot of rehab work and we'll find out here when the Colts start their off-season program in two months just where he's at interesting stuff kevin thanks for uh giving us the scene there in indianapolis a pr- pretty crazy story hopefully things level out here for the colts pretty quick thanks for coming on the show no problem happy to join you reed Kevin Bowen covers the Indianapolis Colts for 1070, the fan in Indy. New England Patriots, they got to be the most hated team in North America. Maybe the most loved and the most hated, depending on which uh, side of the fence you sit. Flames have beaten the Devils 3-2. Flyers knock off the Canadians 5-3. Preds and Sens tied 3-3 with eight minutes left. Lightning up 4-2 on the Canucks with five minutes left. After two, the Blues lead the Avalanche 5-1. Also after two, Wild up 3-1 on the Coyotes. Midway through the second period, Dallas now ahead of Chicago 2-1. Golden Knights and Sharks still to come. The Sabres beat the Islanders 4-3. Raptors win again. 113-88 over the New York Knicks. Oilers game tomorrow here on 6.30, Chad. 6 o'clock face-off show. Puck will drop at 8. Oilers at Anaheim. And we'll leave it with this. Jason Kelsey, center for the Philadelphia Eagles at their Super Bowl rally today. This entire organization... Jeff Stalin has had this in our building for five years. It's a quote in the O-line room that has stood on the wall for the last five years. Hungry dogs run faster. And that's this team. Bottom line is, we wanted it more. All the players, all the coaches, the front office, Jeffrey Lurie, everybody wanted it more. And that's why we're up here today, and that's why we're the first team in Eagles history to hold that freaking trophy. And you know who the biggest underdog is? It's y'all, Philadelphia. For 52 years, y'all have been waiting for this. You want to talk about underdog? You want to talk about a hungry dog? For 52 years, you've been starved in this championship. 630 Chad Inside Sports with Reed Wilkins. Weekdays at 6 on 630 Chad.